We, we all know from our daily experience in the workplace or with public school systems or the post office or FEMA that organizations are not perfect. And yet we all hope when we think about problems uh, such as guarding nuclear power plants or protecting fissile materials or even nuclear weapons storage sites, that the organizations that we have performing those critical tasks can operate with perfect reliability. That concern, while existed before, became even stronger post 9-11 and after the invasion of Afghanistan when it was recognized that Al-Qaeda had been interested Uh, had been interested in potential attacks against nuclear power plants and was interested in acquiring uh, nuclear weapons. How do we try to maintain perfect reliability out of imperfect parts? There's a natural tendency, I believe, to try to add more backup systems, to increase the size of your forces, to do what you commonly believe is adding redundancy to a system to make it safer, more secure. So here are some uh, uh, testimony from, from Congress about how to make sure, at the, at the time 9-11, the design basis threat that is the the threat against which a nuclear power plant um, had to show that it could meet that threat uh, for regulation purposes uh, was to defend against four terrorists. And it has now increased, although the actual number in the design basis threat for both the Department of Energy and for the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which runs the power plant, uh, programs uh, is kept classified. Uh, there have been many discussions about why we need to increase it, potentially the size of 19 or larger. Now, what is this about? What's going on here? Uh, there is a widespread belief in the organization's theory literature that adding redundancy can make a perfect system out of imperfect parts. My Stanford colleague, John Bendor, has uh, a nice line um, citing uh, von Neumann that a system's reliability is not limited by its components' parts, encouraging us to think about this as, as the problem. What it, what, you want to make sure that you have brakes so you can have multiple brakes in a, in, a, in a car. The probability of one of them failing is 10%. Probably of both failing if they are put in serial and are independent from one another is uh, 100. If you have a third one, probably it's one, one to a thousand. Um, I noticed that he didn't have independent redundant proofreaders because he had the wrong spelling of break, but nonetheless, <laughs> these, the simple idea is strong powerful and we resort to it all the time without thinking about it very much. And here's just a, 
uh, a little chart that I'll be using a lot today to illustrate this, this point about having re redundant systems placed in parallel as long as they are independent of one another. If you think that you need to have at least one break work, whatever it is you're talking about, if one works 75% of the time and they're independent, you add two, and the probability that at least one of them will work is 0.938. If you have three, the probability that at least one of the three, even if each of them is only 75% reliable, increases to 0.984. It never can really get up to 100% reliability, but so close that systems round up, and I think we round up mentally and think that we can create perfect systems out of imperfect parts. And what I'm going to do today is walk through examples, trying to give some real-world examples, and then give examples in the nuclear security area where adding redundancy can backfire. And it can backfire through three pathways that I'll be talking about today. The first is that you add redundancy, you make the system more complex, and you add potentially common mode errors that you can't see and can't recognize. And if a common mode error is created by the redundant part, it will cause the whole system to fail, what I call a catastrophic common mode error. Second, I'll give examples of each of these. Second, I'll be describing social shirking, which is the phenomenon by which redundant parts know that there's another redundant part, so their reliability gets reduced. Common phenomenon in human systems that engineers tend to forget about when we talk about redundancy. And last, overcompensation is the phenomenon by which you operate the system in a more stressful environment because you think you have made the system more reliable and safe. I'll be giving examples of all of those as I walk through. Okay? So the first problem with redundancy problem is that redundancy can create common mode errors. Here you have um, that chart that I showed you before. Does everybody understand the basic logic here? I find this intuitive, very simple. And yet, if there is a 10% probability that the redundant unit that you have added causes the problem that you're trying to avoid, you would get a chart that you think you're on the upper chart, the dark blue, but rather, but instead, you're actually on the purple chart. Sometimes engineering uh, companies are aware of this problem. For example, the 777 has two engines on it rather than three, not just because of cost reasons, but because they realized with the reliability of those current systems, the probability that one would catch on fire and cause the whole system to go down was greater if you added a third engine than the probability that that third one would be available if the other two failed. But very often we're not aware of this. One of the classic near accidents 
with nuclear power, uh, the Fermi reactor up in Monroe, Michigan, just north of Toledo, between Toledo and Detroit, um, occurred when the uh, zirconium strips that were added at the last minute by the design engineers, by the safety officers, broke off and plugged the coolant pipe. And because it was added as a last-minute safety device just to make the system extra safe, it wasn't on the as-is blueprints. So when they tried to figure out what could be going wrong, no one could even imagine, because of the extra complexity and opacity that had been added to the system, that this was occurring. The equivalent in a security organization I would argue, is the insider threat. You're adding new security to a system, and yet, if you have the terrorist as part of your extra security guard force, you may actually not be increasing security, but may be decreasing security. Uh, The earlier picture I had of Prime Minister Gandhi had Sergeant Singh in the background, who was the Sikh guard who along with his cousin, who had been added to the security detail after Sikh separatists had threatened Mrs. Gandhi's life after Operation Blue Star in 1984, took their guns out when they were put together and assassinated uh, the prime, prime minister. They did not perceive the attempt could be made from inside. Instead, they were added to add special units designed on the outside. What I've discovered by consulting and reading with the nuclear security is that the insider threat is a far more difficult one to get your handles on inside an elite organizations like the Department of Energy or the Nuclear Regulatory Commission because there is a belief that we are all on the same page, we're all working together. And like Mrs. Gandhi's Secret Service, it's hard for people to imagine that they internally are part of the problem. But we have had insider incidents at the Rocky Flats nuclear uh, production facility where some uh, Rocky Mountain militia organizations had penetrated the security force. Uh, There were a number of sabotage uh, attempts against uh, nuclear power facilities in the Los Alamos lab in the early 90s. There was an insider incident in a power plant in Lithuania. And most recently, a discovery, which I find really quite interesting, because you think as a security specialist that you really need to have the, the guards and the power plant operators get background checks and be secure. But if you're dealing with a big organization like that, sometimes it's the janitors who know which doors are kept open and which locks aren't working. And therefore, I find it particularly interesting uh, that a Livermore lab uh, uh, former employee was was caught with al-Qaeda ties. So how are they trying to deal with this? In my view, not particularly well. Uh, There has been an increase in the design basis threat, the number of terrorists that you use for a planning purpose and then assume that, and, th- and then use that to design how large a force you want to want to have. The good news here is that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's design basis threat 
we still don't have the DOE one declassified or unclassified. At least the good news is that it recognizes that there is a potential insider threat now in the way that they do this. So they say that you must protect against X number of external forces and one passive insider. So they recognize that's a problem. The bad news is that they don't recognize, as far as I can tell, that that same mentality should exist for the guard force as well. And there have been incidents, for example, in recent exercises where it was known that the guard forces collaborated, even in exercises, with friends on the inside to produce results uh, helping uh, show that the force was quite, um, that that particular force was, was secure. Um, you should not assume, as NRC does, that security forces themselves cannot be penetrated uh, by a variety of terrorist organizations. Is the personnel reliability, the kind of certification that they have through background checks and then a psychological testing program sufficient? Who should get it? How high up? How far down? Do all janitors need to have psychological testing? Do all secretaries need to have personal reliability programs? Should you have independent groups studying how these groups are done? And if you think we have problems in the United States, think about the kinds of problems you have in new countries emerging with nuclear weapons trying to protect their nuclear facilities. When you have rampant corruption, you have Islamic fundamentalism uh, within the organizations, not just externally. You have, in the case of Pakistan, two assassination attempts against the president, both of which had insiders in the security forces involved. But I would argue that this is a very serious problem, and it's not solved simply by saying we're going to put more forces against this threat because the threat has increased. So that's the first reason why you should not just assume that adding redundancy helps the system. The second is one that comes from the social psychology literature. And there may be people here at Mirshan who know this literature better than I, but the picture here is of Kitty Genovese. Does anybody recall the story from the mid-60s? Uh, young woman is uh, um, assaulted and then murdered outside an apartment house uh, in New York City, and 38 people witness it, and not one calls the police. And the original reporting on this was, oh, New Yorkers, they're so callous and cruel, they would never stoop to help someone. But then as people began to study this more, they recognized that this is a phenomenon of social shirking. I assume that you are going to call. You assume that I'm going to call. We see all these people. Certainly one of these people is going to, to call. And each of us knowing that the other one is going to just reduces our reliability. Again, if this is done, this has the effects that some social psychologists have found in classroom laboratory settings. You could imagine that same phenomenon occurring. You think, oh, I'm adding more redundancy. They're independent. 
and done in parallel when in fact they're not independent because they're aware of one another and therefore they shirk, be less likely to call in, less likely to call the alarm, less likely to shoot if they think somebody else is there who should shoot. With just a 15% reduction in reliability of each component per additional component, you get massive decreases. Where are we in nuclear security with respect to social shirking? I don't know. But I do know that this is a common phenomenon in military circles, and it's a hard one to address. Case study in mind, for those of you who haven't read it, I strongly recommend a, a, a book by Scott Snook, formerly a professor of social science at, the, at West Point, now teaching in the business school at Harvard, um, called Friendly Fire, which is a, a detailed organizational study of the shootdown of two U.S. Blackhawks by two U.S. F-15s uh, in the um, early, mid-1990s. Uh, 26 U.S. and European peacekeepers were killed. And as, as Snook shows so well, although he doesn't put it in this, quite in this theoretical context, that there was social shirking in two different ways. One is that there were two jets, two F-15s flying, both of which are to have independent confirmation that what they are seeing is a Iraqi helicopter, not a U.S. helicopter, both of, when, uh, both of whom, because of the way that they communicate to each other, think that the other person has provided that independent confirmation. The first one asks, confirm Heinz. The second one says, stand by. The wingman responds, tally two, which means that he saw that there was a second one the first one testified that he thought that that meant that he was confirming that there were two Russian-based helicopters, not U.S. helicopters, therefore allied helicopters, not, not, not Iraqi helicopters. So the first one shoots. The second one, thinking that, oh, the fact that he shot must mean that he just got firmer confirmation from somewhere. So these must be Iraqi helicopters. So even though he had not confirmed and he wasn't sure what they were, he shoots them down, shoots the second one down anyway. And both of them later testified, look, I've been there on my own. I would have flown closer to be more reliable. But the fact that this other force was there created a social shirking. And to make matters worse, up above, there's an AWACS looking down at the whole incident with numerous people involved, all of whom were told to have shared responsibility to advise what was going down on the ground. In the investigation afterwards, well, who's got responsibility to tell them that there are U.S. helicopters down there? And what they're looking at might be a U.S. helicopter. The Master Control Center, I think that's what MCC stands for, says, well, I'd have everybody looking at it. Who's responsible? Everybody is. You know, it's a team effort. In order to have increased reliability, you want to have lots of people looking at it. The answer is everybody on position on the AWACS crew 
had responsibility because everybody had responsibility, no one had responsibility, and not a single person, as the New Yorkers who saw Kitty Genovese get killed, called down to the F-15s and said, guys, you know, be aware that there are two U.S. helicopters flying in the area, and you should double check. How does the Department of Energy deal with this? You'll see uh, an example of a, a problem in a moment. Uh, but clearly you need to have some balance between decentralized decision making, but some form of hierarchy is, is inevitable. People are going to look up for higher authorities, and there's a, a rich literature that needs to be applied about how hierarchy and beliefs about who signals who should take the first acts influence people's liability. Awareness of this problem, I think, can help combat it, but a discussion of this is very difficult in, in elite organizations that like to maintain the myth that we all are perfectly responsible and that none of us would ever shirk thinking that somebody else will take over the task for us. Here's the third and the one that I think is the hardest to get one's uh, theoretical mind around, which is the problem of overcompensation. Um, I'm intrigued by this at a, at a personal level as well as a professional level because I see phenomena like this happen all the time. Um, there has been a recent study um, in a medical journal that demonstrated quite compellingly that the increased use of ski helmets has led to an increase in head injuries in skiing. If you ski the way you normally ski or the ski the way you ski before you have a helmet, having a helmet will help you. If you ski faster because you have a helmet, it may or may not help you. If you ski faster and go between the trees because you have a helmet, it still might help you, but it is very problematic whether it will actually have that effect. Similar phenomena has been noted, for example, with aspirins. The introduction of safety, device, safety bottle caps over the last two decades, Kip Vescusi, uh, an economist now at the Kennedy School, has demonstrated has led to an increase in child poisoning. Safety bottle caps kept on properly in the medicine cabinet will lead to a decrease. But because it influences our behavior, we tend to leave them out on the kitchen table because it's got a safety cap on it. And sometimes kids can get into safety cap bottles. They learn how to do that. And sometimes you leave the safety cap off Combining these factors together, he shows empirically that there's been a rise rather than a decrease because of this extra safety device. So I began thinking about this. The, the literature that's richest on this is um, the ongoing study of, of how safety devices in cars increase or decrease the safety of the individuals. What are the, what are the effects of having safer cars on fatal car crashes. And um, you can think theoretically that you can, if even knowing that 
driving faster increases the probability of an accident. If you have certain assumptions about what the probability is that you can, um, what, the, what that increase will be, you can have rational compensation. You can drive faster and still be safer if you have seatbelts, brakes, and airbags. If, however, you just slightly change the assumptions and believe that instead of the earlier probability, and here in this case you have the probability of a crash increasing by 20% every 25 miles, and you increase the speed of 35%, suddenly you may think that you can drive faster and still be safer when, in fact, you started going down that slippery slope and decreasing. Moreover, using the same assumptions again, what if driving faster not only creates a higher likelihood that you'll crash, but a higher probability that the safety device will fail because seatbelts work better at lower speeds than faster speeds. The helmets, to use the example saying before, will work better if you're going slow down a, uh, a green run, as I would do, rather than going faster down a black diamond run through the trees. If you then add that extra bit of complexity, you can see that adding extra safety devices, extra redundancy, if it increases your risk-taking propensity and increases the failure rate of the devices, you may think, boy, I'm doing very well, when in fact you are having massive decreases. You can play with these numbers and get very different kind of results. An example of this phenomenon wasn't recognized at the time was the Challenger launch decision back in 87, people would call it? I think it was 1986, um, where there were two O-rings going around. That's a, a, a side view of them. Uh, and when it was pointed out that they did not have sufficient data on what the effects of the cold temperature, unseasonably cold temperature in Florida would be, the Thiokol uh, engineers protested a launch decision, said we need to relook at this data. And the NASA people went back and looked at the tests and said that the data always showed that the primary, if there's a burn through, the first one, the second one, in the worst case scenario, would seal. Redundancy would save the day. Uh oh. One of the things we always believed was that if you blew through the one, because they were only looking at one particular scenario and hadn't seen that both of them were getting cold, the first one fails, the second one will, will seal. Earlier, they, he used the term the faith in the secondary. Not the calculation. Don't forget the secondary. You know there's always the secondary. 
And so they waived their concerns and let the launch go forward, as we all know. If the primary seal does not see it, the secondary will see it. And of course, the cold, it was both of them. They launched in a much more stressful environment because they had a knee-jerk faith reaction that having reliability would increase, having redundancy would increase the overall reliability of the system and therefore overcompensated launching in colder uh, weather. What you see in all of these cases, I think, is that you end up adding safety and it influences your behavior. Moreover, both, certainly in the case of, of, of the two helicopters, one of those is, is the Iraqi Heinz and one of them is the, the U.S. Blackhawk. So you could see if you got closer, you could uh, make a clear identification. Uh, people felt that redundancy permitted lower people down below to waive safety rules in their particular case because other people are going to follow their safety rules, so we've got other things to do, and because it's not clear always what the cause of an accident is, understanding of this phenomenon is often opaque to the people involved. Is the U.S. homeland security process guilty of overcompensation. It's very difficult to know here because the NRC and the Department of Energy, for very understandable reasons in my view, don't publicize all the details about how they guard nuclear facilities. But I believe we have a problem here that's not well analyzed. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, for example, recently made a ruling that when you make your license proposal to get a, build a new power plant, you do not need to take in, into account in your analysis the probability of a terrorist attack. Why was that? Because the commission ruled, although they acknowledged that, yes, because of what we know about September 11th, that there had been a power plant in one of their first plans for an attack, and because of what I showed you earlier about the, what was found in the Al-Qaeda caves in Afghanistan, that this is a concern, but the proper approach is to improve security at the sites on airplanes generally around the country, rather than to determine, well, what's the probability each time somebody makes a license. So they're trying to expand the number of nuclear power plants, assuming that if you add extra security to each one, you're going to be safe here without thinking that adding more power plants creates more targets. And you need to at least think about whether you are in the overcompensation mode. And let me just give one final example and then open it up to questions uh, and comments. Um, the article on which uh, I was speaking off of today was published in Risk Analysis uh, in 2004, and a copy of it was given to Linton Brooks, who's the uh, equivalent of the, deputy of the Deputy Secretary of Energy, the head of the nuclear, National Nuclear Security Administration, uh, the DOE 
unit that's in charge of nuclear weapons in this country. And uh, Ambassador Brooks sent a note out to his uh, people down below asking, um, we ought to, see, I don't know how we take this phenomenon into account in our form of vulnerability analysis, but we ought to either take it into account or convince ourselves that Sagan's wrong. So then he gets a, a response back, which I find really interesting. And remember in that first discussion, I said that one of the key issues is to get your numbers right, and it's really hard to do that. To if you want to assume the probability of an insider is 0.001, that will get you a different redundancy reliability curves and if you assume it's 0 0.10. Assume that there's no probability, then you have, you're on that higher curve. And I simply say, the most important thing is to really have very accurate assessments. If you don't have an accurate assessment, you won't know where you are on the curve and therefore where you should stop. Their response to this was to say, I'm sorry about the, the how, uh, I thought we'd have a bigger screen here, uh, but what they say uh, our policy goes beyond the initial routine screening programs and encompasses Scott D. Sagan's recommendation, which states calculations must also include an accurate assessment of the insider threat. So they don't tell their boss, we have an accurate assessment and here's how we assess it, here's how we do it. They just say, we've taken it into account and we have an accurate assessment. I asked Brooks how he reacted to that. He said, I think we need to check this yet one more time. Uh, fortunately, he understood this. And then lastly, in terms of social shirking, I think they're on the right track in that they're talking about intensive protective force training and exercise programs to try to address these issues. But I would conclude that the organizations involved with nuclear security need to be looked at by both independent organizations that have full access to classified information. And there is no such external organization today. There is in the nuclear safety arena in which there is a independent organization that makes sure that safety rules are appropriate, are designed properly for nuclear power plants, and implementation is done appropriately. There's no such equivalent organization that helps us protect our nuclear power plants and our nuclear weapons storage, maintenance, and dismantling facilities. Instead, we let the organizations do it themselves. These issues need to be addressed through exercises and simulations, not just by analogy, the way I was trying to do it, and the exercise program here, again, is designed by people internally <clears throat> with fewer external actors involved. There are inherent limits, I would argue, caused by the imperfection of components and by the interdependence of components. And too often when I've talked about this at the Department of Energy, I've gotten the sense that these are physicists and engineers who well understand the independence of the units that they are acting, that they are working on, and can engineer independence. When in human organizations, it's much harder to do so. 
You need to have people aware of this down below and up above. And lastly, you should expect the unexpected and always think twice, not thrice, <coughs> about using redundancy. So I'll conclude there. I'd love uh, feedback on this and either examples or solutions, because this is a case of uh, someone trying to use scholarship, both in history and in engineering, to illuminate a problem that I believe inside the organizations they have not properly um, addressed. And any extra examples, thoughts, or ammunition that you may have in this effort is helpful. Um, I've talked, as I suggested to people inside the Energy Department and the International Atomic Energy Agency on this, and I'm lecturing next month in India to an Indian and Pakistani audience about this. But I'd love to try out these ideas and hear your results, or your, your comments here at Mershon. So please, we've got 10 minutes before. Some of you have to leave, and then we can go on a little bit more. Yeah, back here. It can, it can, for my sake, could you identify yourself so I know who people are? You're going to care about them more if you have fewer weapons. Yeah. Right, and so they can appoint the people, they can, you know, there's going to be much more direct executive control. So I see where you would say that this would be a problem for a great power state like the United States, Russia. But I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned about what the implications would be for it, or, or where there are any implications for third world state states like India, uh, Israel, Pakistan, North Korea. Right. That's a great question. Um, all other things being held equal, I think it is very likely to be true that a state that has a small number of nuclear weapons will take better care of them. For the logic, the rational logic that Singh and some others, including many others in Pakistan and India, have, have cited. Uh, unfortunately, not everything is held equal in these particular cases. So for example, in Pakistan, what I discovered through a set of meetings in Rawalpindi and Islamabad is that they, after they tested and began to deploy nuclear weapons post-1998, that they had as their security unit the guards and the command and control officers were screened by the ISI, the Inter Service Intelligence Agency, which also had the other responsibility of running the jihad in Kashmir and as the point person for their relationship with the Taliban. Their mode of analysis was as far as I could tell, from talking to the people who were, this, these were all in, in um, uh, how can I put this, 
sensitive discussions inside uh, the, the general staff headquarters in Rawalpindi, um, where they were trying to figure out, well, this doesn't seem right. How should we do this? And they were stating quite directly that currently we have a couple big problems. One, the ISI basically is looking for people to make sure that they're not Indian spies. If they are, their fervor in their religious belief is actually a huge plus and their willingness to support terrorists, i.e. freedom fighters, and to be involved with them and to have ties with them is a big plus because that's our state policy. Moreover, until 97, 98, your record to increase and rise higher up in the organization included not just your senior officer writing reports, but how often you went to mosques and what your religious, uh, the strength of your religious belief system. And in that kind of system, they began to say, is this really what we want, given now that our government's turning its policies against this? So Musharraf in September 2001 got rid of the head of the ISI and chopped off a top layer, he does not know what the beliefs, loyalty, and insider threat is for people down below him. So based on, on my contacts there, I know that they have started a new personnel reliability program, but they've got a long ways to go to get even close to the U.S. system. But given that they have smaller numbers, who's safer or not, I don't know. I would think the likelihood of a, of a, a theft out of Pakistan is greater than out of here, but I think both are serious. Well, I, I you Again, a great question. Um, the U.S. system is imperfect. I don't think it stinks. Uh, and what I'm saying is that they need to take into account because these are very professional. People, the Strategic Command, the National Nuclear Security Agency, we should be um, much more sensitive on the academy not to think that these guys are dummies. These are professionals who are doing a very good job. They just have a very, very difficult task. I think the Strategic Plans Division in Pakistan are pretty professional, but I think that they are going into a new area that they haven't had any experience in and need to learn both some of the successes that we've had and some of the failures that we've had. This is a common problem. So I'm pleased now that after many years of not talking to the Indians and Pakistanis, the Department of Energy now is actually starting programs that I'm involved in on the, on the in some ways um, to encourage this kind of learning. Not because our system's perfect, but because we've got some experiences that they might learn from, and we might, frankly, learn something from about how they're doing it as well. Tim. Um, two uh, examples, one privilege. I drive a 1993 Toyota Corolla. I'm proud to have been. And the unique design feature of having a single airbag on the driver's side. It seems to be the exact opposite of what it was like, right? You'd like the airbag on the passenger side, it's like a metal spike. <laughs> 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 prevent this kind of overcompensation. Uh, 
I can see now the, the Fry corollary. Uh, Yeah, no, I think that's 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 absolutely right. Um, economists use the term risk homeostasis, arguing that we we reveal our preferences when we drive faster, and we come to the right uh, the right mixture of, of of production benefit, speed, or or launching the shuttle, or or having more nuclear weapon sites or more nuclear power plants versus the risk. And I would argue that. That's a construct. That's not really how people do. People do this trade-off without really being aware of there being that much of a loss. They think that they have stopped the problem of the trade-off when, in fact, they continue. And in my conversation with, with Lytton Brooks about these, these memos, he actually made a, a very telling point. He said, I could reduce, I, Lytton Brooks, could reduce the security problem in the United States enormously by closing one particular facility at Los Alamos, which is the most dangerous facility in the United States for security reasons, because it was designed in this uh, in a below two cliffs, not thinking about terrorist problems. And he said, you know, we really have a real hard time protecting that up to our own standards. And yet, I'm willing to accept some risks of an attack against that facility from insiders or outsiders because I want that because he wants to build new nuclear weapons. And so he's trying to address this trade-off. I think that we often think that there's not a trade-off when there is. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, no, um, Kahneman and Tversky's work both this and on the reasons why people round up uh, when they, there's a small probability they, they get rid of that. I think both are, are, are telling here. Um, on your first point, yeah, if you can do what you can to, to maximize the independence of the redundant units, that's what you're suggesting. That would help address the social shirking problem. If you have fence, you have sensors, and you have guards, rather than having more guards. Okay. Um, these are cost factors. We're trying to do that in the U.S. system. We're trying to encourage the Russians now, as part of the Nunn-Luger program, not to do what their natural tendency is, is to add more guards, but rather to take some of our technology for some of the portal monitors and use that instead because those are more independent forms of, of redundancy. So I think that's actually right. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering, I'm Bridget Cotting, I'm a PhD in political science. I was wondering how viable you think your recommendations are uh, given that most of the, the kind of normal accidents that, that we hear about are uh, normal science accidents or kind of economic accidents. Uh, Given that we're so wildly wrong about estimating both you know, the, the capabilities and the intentions of other humans, you know, terrorist, terrorist elements or what have you, how good do you think we'll be at, at reducing redundancy when we're so bad at estimating initial threats? Boy. Um, I personally am pessimistic about how well organizations can deal with these kinds of complex issues. Uh, they are confronted with multiple goals. They have production pressures on top of safety and reliability pressures. Uh, there's a wonderful photograph in the uh, Columbia accident report that shows, despite the arguments such as I've made and Diane Vaughn made about uh, production pressures increasing the, the desire of, of, of people uh, in the earlier case, in the, in the 86 case, to, to launch the Challenger. Nonetheless, all people at NASA were given a screensaver that showed the days, minutes, and seconds until the next scheduled launch on them. And so if you say, well, I've got to make quick decisions and I've got to cut and make a waiver on safety for the sake of, of, of production, the, the systems are often geared towards that. It's, un, it's understandable and unfortunate. So I'm pessimistic about this. I am optimistic enough and also frankly feel some responsibility to, to push that system and try, when possible, to get these ideas penetrating. And I do it by going to Islamabad and talking to their military officers. I do it by bugging Linton Brooks about uh, the responses to people who uh, read but did not fully 
understand the arguments. And occasionally, just occasionally, I see reasons to be optimistic when I see changes, like what's happened in Pakistan recently. But given that we're dealing with imperfect human beings, we have a very hard time measuring and assessing others' reactions. I'm uh, eternally a pessimist on this. Yes, gentlemen here. Oh, good. Explain this. This is this is. Well, just I mean, if, you, if the, the electronic fence, if you have perfect credibility in this, it doesn't go off. There's no problem, right? But what if you can find a way to get around those sorts of measures? So this this reliance in, in terms, it, it not it's not necessarily. Ah, okay. But again, in coming back to the discourse, I was trying to think of more general examples of when you get everybody doing the same thing, when you get everybody reporting on something, when you get the same response from everybody. The only examples I can come up with are, of course, I invite them in this journey, everybody was reporting on their neighbors and things like this based on fear and coercion. But I wonder if those sorts of examples, when you get somebody, get this group dynamic and everybody wants to do the same thing, if this is one way to get around what I think is the most important problem of this social structure, um, and, and do you have any ideas of, of where you can go with that, um, other places to look for examples and how people can get around this? Uh, answer the second, no, and if you do have good examples. I know, for example, in the personnel reliability program um, that we have now, I don't know how it was historically, but there is a both a self-reporting capability and an anonymous reporting capability. That is, if you think your buddy is despondent because of a divorce or you suspect that she's drinking really heavily on the job or has uh, been hanging out with some seedy suspects who seem to be uh, Rocky Mountain militia. You can report this kind of kind of activity. Um, so th that does that does happen. And in the PRP, we have between four and five percent of formerly certified individuals are decertified uh, every year. Uh, in part because of this phenomenon, in part because of, of medical uh, facilities, etc. Um, does that create extra morale problems? Probably. Uh, I don't know if anybody here was in the PRP. I think somewhere um, they want to comment on it. Um, but I think that's absolutely necessary, nonetheless. Thank you. 
strikes me that it's never it, it could create exactly the kind of problem you're talking about. There has to be another mechanism. Yeah. What? Yeah, I, I don't think there is a, a perfect mechanism to get, a, get around that other than having anonymous reports so that you don't feel implicated and that you put in um, you know, suspicions as well as things that you have firm evidence of. Um, tonight I'll be talking to Ohio Wesleyan about Pakistan in particular, addressing some of your questions and this AQ Khan question. The AQ Khan issue is, a, I think, a fascinating one. I haven't... How can I put it into... To this context, it is an example where the, if, if the story, at least given by the Strategic Plans Division, is accurate, they felt that they had improved the reliability of the security forces around AQ Khan and the, and the plant. This is later. This is once he's in, in Pakistan. And they had suspicions, and their reaction to this was to put more and higher level, that is, the better guys who had risen to the senior colonel or brigadier level in the security forces on the uh, Khan Research Laboratory security force. What they failed to recognize was that in Pakistan, when you retire from the armed forces, you don't always have as secure a living as you might want. And they had no rules the way we have rules that stop you from taking jobs with the unit that you have been protecting. So as he put more people on this force, all Khan did was to increase the amount of budget used to hire these guys when they retired the next year or two years later. And everybody began to recognize that for their own security purposes, so to speak, they would do this. Um, and so you had a Pakistani military government feeling like they had solved the problem when, in fact, Khan had gone around it. That's just a little bit of historical knowledge. Mary. Titanic. Okay, let me think about that. We'll talk offline about using all three. In the back. And what 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 service in Air Force in this area or? Okay. Right. Those are, very, those are very helpful comments. Thank you. Over here. 
Sure, sure. And who are you? Uh, I'm going to wire. I would say that I would not want my argument to be interpreted by any organizational leader as saying that you should automatically reduce redundancy. That's not my, my argument, because I don't know where different organizations are on those curves. Are they still on the upward slope? Are they down? How are they addressing this? All I'm suggesting that is until you know that, you are likely to make a wrong choice. Either not have too much, either have too much or too little. And there is a natural human and an organizational reason to add more. Therefore, you should be very cautious about it. Um, how this could affect people afterwards, um, I think it would depend on whether it worked or not. If it worked, people would say, oh, look, uh, you know, we cut forces, didn't spend as much, and still did not have something occur, that was a good thing. If it didn't work, they'd say, ah, it shows that uh, we made the, the wrong choice last time, and they'd pump more money into this so that at least they could say, I don't know where I was on the chart, but I tried harder, and therefore the politics of blame won't come down on them uh, quite so hard. So because of this concern about what happens if, if we're wrong, I think there's a tendency to, to, to overcompensate in the other way. Yeah. Russ? Every IG team that came in never saw, never noticed the little 
Yeah, sure. I'm wondering if those kinds of human factors come into play. Yeah, they come into play all the time. And um, one reason why, well, I have not heard that particular story, so thank you, Russ. Um, but, uh, there are examples like that. In, in, yeah, there are examples like that in that. And there's also a wonderful book by a, a security, an Air Force security uh, guard called um, Major Smith's Box, A Cold War History, which is uh, a novel about these kinds of phenomena. Um, I don't know how to address that, except... Oh, no. No, except to actually try to come up with these kinds of examples and to use them to illustrate the nature of this problem so that people who have authority over these can learn appropriate lessons. In this particular case, that's a dumb system to have it so that you expect people will memorize something every three days. And it's a very natural workaround to make things work to add this. So, so a lesson there is not to make it so restrictive that you're going to encourage people to do work routes. Indeed, you're going to encourage the people who want to be able to open the safes quickly to do that. There's a problem of, of, of good, reliable officers wanting to do the workarounds, and they make the trade-offs themselves. What I would like to have happen in this area is for all um, states that deal with nuclear weapons security issues to try to improve their vicarious learning from one another. Bismarck once said that only a fool learns from his mistakes. Wise men learn from other people's mistakes. And to the degree that we are very secretive about this, think that we can't talk to the Russians and the Russians can't talk to the Chinese, we're going to minimize organizational vicarious learning. So getting your stories and many others together. Yeah. It's a very it's a serious problem, and politically, I've tried to combat this. There are people who work in the same general area as I do who will say, oh, look, we, the Department of Energy security units failed on this percentage number of times in their, in their exercises. And the answer is, well, that's good, because the exercises are designed to failure. They, they try to put extra forces on so that you can learn from these particular events, and yet, because when this gets publicized, people will put their wagons in a circle and try to protect the organization, and then suddenly you have an excessive number of successes and people don't learn from them because the system is rigged. There was a recent case, I don't know if you read about this, at the um, Oak Ridge reactor that I alluded to obliquely before in which the Oak Ridge unit was found to have perfect security for force scores in something like six years of exercises in a row. It was so unprecedented that they put a special IG unit on it and discovered that the red team, former SEALs, who were attacking it, were giving them the information the day before about where the attack would come because they were buddies and they wanted to help the organization. You have to have more independence of those kinds of units, and that's a lesson that you might think of abstractly, but until we publicize these kinds of things internally and to other countries, they're not going to think about having their 
red team former SEALs attacking the Ignalina power plant in Lithuania in exercises, they're not going to think that these guys should never communicate with the people on the inside ahead of time. You've got to learn these lessons through trial and error processes. Time for one or two last questions? Randy and then the guy back, and we should close. I'll try to very briefly, the reason why the overcompensation issue is at play is if you decide that you're not going, for example, um, reduce the number of storage sites in which you keep nuclear weapons or nuclear materials because you've increased the um, number of, of security forces. So that you are, in essence, having more targets out there, more opportunities, even though each one is, is is protected a little bit better. It would be even better if you kept the current number and had more security forces around. Now, you may decide you want to do that. It may say that the trade-off is such that that's worthwhile. Um, on the terrorist uh, interest in this, I think we just have to look empirically. I mean, you might be right. I don't know of any uh, al-Qaeda uh, document that, that, that uh, specified the Buckeye Stadium, but I do know that the September 11th terrorists had nuclear power plants as one of their potential targets when they did their planning. And we do know from, it was actually a, um, a uh, laptop that was found in uh, Afghanistan that they were casing U.S. nuclear power plants. And their goal, I, th I think, was to create a, a mini Chernobyl by either attacking the reactor core or the uh, spent fuel ponds around it, in which case there would have been uh, plutonium uh, in the air in aerosized forms that would have caused lung cancer to lots of people around. No, no. I mean, like even, even, even in the Simpsons, one person can't, can't, can't do that. Yeah, all I'm trying to say is the insider threat is the hardest thing for people in elite organizations to address because so much of their time is spent creating the morale of the insider as the loyal person opposing the opposite, the ex external, that it creates all sorts of conflicts when you have to think about and watch your back in all these ways. And what I've found as I've explored this 
is that people are aware of this problem but have a very hard time addressing it. Last question, then we should be great. I mean, this is a category under moral hazard arguments, which I, I think are that we've created that extra insurance or whatever it is that has changed people's behavior in, in, in negative ways. And this is one particular example of a moral hazard problem. Did you yeah. that graph, by the way, where you had 25% These are, these are heuristic devices. I've run them in lots of different ways, and sometimes you can see compensation, sometimes you see it going down, sometimes up. And good risk engineers do that repeatedly. What I found in trying to address this inside the Department of Energy was that they were thinking, oh, this is really interesting. We should be doing more of this kind of work, and yet told their boss up above that we've solved the problem already. Well, I want to thank Scott for coming. And